Hey everyone, Duncan Fletcher here. Welcome back to the PADS Athlete Development Podcast Series. Today we've got a conversation with Shane McCurry. Now Shane's too humble a guy to get into this, but it's important to note that what he has been able to do in the context of the Australian Football League, and in particular the work he's done with the Richmond Tigers, is that he's brought together culture, leadership, and well-being under what I would sort of term an athlete development umbrella, and he's tied it to performance. And he's done this systematically across the entire organization, and the results have been nothing short of spectacular. The Tigers have won three premierships in, I believe, five years, which is their equivalent of a Super Bowl. And several of the other teams that Shane works with, including the Melbourne, Melbourne Storm of the National Rugby League, and the Melbourne Vixens in Super Netball have also won premierships. Shane is a person that I think embodies the effective merge of athlete development initiatives and performance outcomes within a team construct. He's somebody that we need to listen to as an organization and learn from. So with that, let's dive in. Hello, friends. The PADS Athlete Development Summit podcast series is extraordinarily fortunate to have Aura Health as a sponsor this year. Founded in 2013, Aura Health is the company behind the health tech wearable, the Aura Ring, which provides actionable insights on sleep and its impact on your overall health. It's used by top performers across a variety of industries, including the NBA, the WNBA, NASCAR, UFC, and more. And in fact, I've got one on my finger, which I had before Aura even thought about sponsoring pads. I can tell you one thing for sure. It's definitely helped me align my sleep, which was an absolute car wreck. The Aura Ring delivers personalized readiness and activity and sleep insights automatically to the Aura app, providing wearers with practical steps for long-term improvement. I can attest to that. The Aura Ring is not a medical device and is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, monitor, or prevent medical conditions or illnesses. For more information, I'd urge you to check out AuraRing.com. And on behalf of PADS, we thank you for your sponsorship of the PADS Athlete Development Summit podcast series. Hi, everyone. Duncan Fletcher here, the Executive Director of PADS. Uh, We're about to have another phenomenal conversation in our Athlete Development podcast series. I'm here with my colleague, Stephanie Thorburn. How are you doing, Stephanie? I'm doing great. Really looking forward to this conversation. Well, you should be because we're talking to Shane McCurry. Shane is uh, based out of Australia, currently with the Richmond Tigers of the Australian Football League. Shane, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Duncan and Stephanie. It's great to be with you. We're excited to have you, man. And, you know, there's a bunch of different things uh, we got to talk about. Uh, and obviously, you're actually our first international guest that uh, we've been able to talk to here. So we're, we're trying to get that international perspective. So we appreciate you coming on to talk about what's going on in Australia and your experiences working down there. But before we get into what you're doing, and I think it's some phenomenal stuff, before we get into that, why don't you talk a little bit, if you don't mind, just to kind of give people a picture of who Shane McCurry is, talk about how you got excited about sport and how that led to what you're doing today. Yeah, thanks, Duncan. It, um, it, it, it's it's a good place to start, and and I think often a, a podcast like this will do that. It takes on even greater relevance in the context of the work that I do because I'm very passionate about storytelling and that notion that a lot of the work we do in and around the athlete wellbeing space, and I'm probably a bit more focused on culture and leadership specifically, um, and and the development of culture and leadership capability uh, through wellbeing. And, and I think that the work we do in and around that space is starting with your story and identifying where you've come from and where you're at and where you're going. And, and that storytelling is such a big part of the work we do with athletes and coaches as well too is, is being able to, to turn into your story and identify your story as being a big part of the way that you can not just live a, a fulfilling life um, from a personal perspective, but um, more so to, to be able to achieve everything you want to from a professional perspective as well too. So I, I was really lucky. I, um, I grew up in uh, regional Australia, um, a little town called Rochester, about two hours north of Melbourne, small little uh, tight-knit uh, dairy farming community, I suppose you'd call it, of about 2,000 people. And uh, I, I'm really proud of that country upbringing or outback upbringing because it instilled within me a lot of values around the power of community and that notion that when things kind of go wrong in a country area people band together to to get to get through it and whether it's droughts or floods or bushfires or a member of the community passes away and we tend to get 
a lot of that sort of stuff happened in Australia. The, the, the community really rallies around each other in a small country town uh, and they help each other through it. And it, it's, it's similar in a way to a team sport environment because that's the great thing about sport is that you're part of a group of people and everyone comes from different walks of life, but you have an opportunity to come together in a team sport environment and uh, uh, keep fit and healthy um, work together towards a common goal uh, and have a lot of fun in the process as well too. So that that um, has always been a part of my uh, upbringing, I suppose, having grown up in a country area where sport was enormous. Um, you know, you had within 100 metres of where I lived, you had a football ground and a, a cricket pitch and a and tennis courts and a golf course. And so it, it's part of the Australian way of life is to play sport from a very young age, even if you don't have an ambition to play at the elite level. We have a, a thriving community sport environment, um, whether you're a, a young tacker uh, who's playing physical or engaged in physical activity for the first time or, or whether you're an older adult, you can still play any sport you want really at any level. And that's where it's probably a bit different to, um, to North America in that regard because um, sometimes people will only play sport to a certain level and then stop, whereas we try to continue to play sport. So it's always a big part of, of growing up in Australia, but particularly growing up in the country. Uh, in terms of where the, the passion for this space first come from, I was really lucky uh, when I was about 15 or 16 at school in year 10, as we call it, uh, we had a, a guy come to speak to us at school and his name was Tommy Hafey. And he's a legendary premiership player and coach uh, in Australian football here in, in the Aussie rules, as we call it. Um, the Australian Football League is the, the main premier sporting competition in the country and Tommy had been a, a coaching and playing legend for a really long period of time and he came to speak to us at school uh, when I was in year 10 and and he had a an incredible message about uh, not just football and sport but he had an incredible message about life and I remember he was probably one of the first people I'd seen from a professional sport viewpoint in the flesh right there in front of me speaking about everything that it was that he did. And I still remember watching him do what he did that day and the entire room, whether you liked sport or football or not, you were captivated by him and his energy and his passion and his message about uh, how to live a fulfilling life. And he's someone who right through until when he passed away a few years ago now, he continued to touch the lives of the people around him that he'd been involved with over a really long period. So um, he was just a tremendous person. And he was someone who, even though he achieved a lot at the highest levels of the game as a player and coach, it was much more the way he touched the lives of his players and their partners and families off the field that made him such a great coach. So I think Tommy was one of those early influences that I had that, that gave me a passion for this space in seeing that uh, sport and team, team sport and performance is not all about just what you do on the scoreboard. It's, it's much more about who you are as a person off the field um, and the way that you do, get the ability through sport to develop your character and personality and identity in such a way that that sets you up for your entire sporting career, but also for your life that comes uh, afterwards. Um, there's a guy over in the States that um, I really admire for the work that he's done in and around that area, um, Joe Ehrman, who wrote the book Inside Out Coaching. And I love Joe's sort of uh, concept around, uh, do you want to be a, a transactional coach or do you want to be a transformational coach? Uh, and so that piece around how do you use sport as a vehicle for transformation with people to bring groups of people together um, to do great things together um, and to feel like it's adding value to their life through the process is kind of a big part of, of, of the philosophy that I've, I've brought in through those influences that I've had. I was, I've also been very lucky to have a mentor um, by the name of David Parkin, um, who's another AFL premiership coach here in Australia. Um, David's well into his 70s now. Uh, I've been working with him for over 20 years. And, and David, David was the first coach anywhere in the world to introduce player leadership groups into professional sport. And that's now something that's spread right throughout the world. Like every sport at every level of the game in our country would now have player leadership groups, whereby it's not just the captain, the one captain or the captain and the vice captain. It's, it's a small group of, 
players and executive committee, if you like, of the broader playing group who are empowered by the coach and administration to help drive their own destiny. Um, and particularly in sports where you've got a lot of players, like football, and it's the same for American football, where you've got you know 50-plus players on your list, that notion that one person can lead the whole team is 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 somewhat flawed. You need a group of capable people who are able to help drive the team. So David was the first coach in the world to introduce player leadership groups at Carlton back in the mid-1990s. He evolved his view of the way that coaching should be done and and introduced those, and and, and they've now um, really taken the world by storm. But the other part of David's philosophy that made him great as a coach was he was an enormous believer because of his own experience with playing and being a lecturer at university as well too while he was coaching, he was a big believer that the off-field engagement of players drives their on-field performance. He had a hypothesis, he's always had a hypothesis that players who are involved in some form of work or study or community involvement away from their sport will have longer careers will have more successful careers, uh, will get more out of their careers, and they'll be involved in in less antisocial behaviour throughout their careers. And the fifth one is that they'll transition better into the next phase of their life. And, And hopefully you sort of get to a point whereby it's actually not a transition at all because it's just another phase of their life. It's 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 not a, a big thing. Uh, like what some, sometimes we make it out to be in the athlete wellbeing areas, if we haven't done the work while they're playing, that that transition can be hard for them. Whereas you're actually doing the work from when they first arrive with your organisation so that the, the transition isn't actually a transition at all. Um, so, so David was another early influence that's had an enormous impact over the way that, that um, I've, uh, I suppose, approached the work we do in, in, in a team sports space. Uh, and also some of the research that's evolved to try to put together a, a more of an evidence base, uh, an empirical base around the link between off-field engagement and on-field performance uh, or, or athlete well-being and um, better performance outcomes. And, and not just athlete well-being, but also coach well-being too as part of that. Shane, can I just follow up with that? One thing that we face um, throughout our careers is the pushback from the front office or the coaches or the administration that um, taking time away from their athletic performance will actually decrease their athletic performance. And um, you talked about the work that David's done that has actually proved quite the opposite. And there's some empirical studies, you know, for some of the naysayers, um, the athlete development specialists are faced those naysayers. What can you say to them to help them advocate for this work that we're doing that shows, you know, exactly um, what we truly believe that the, 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 um, the balance, the education off the field, the structure, the drive will just assist what is transpiring on the field. Well, the first thing, Stephanie, is you, you have to have persistence. <laughs> And a strong will and determination and, and a resilience around not giving in at the first hurdle because there will be so many hurdles, as you, as you correctly point out. And I think that that's very much still the common experience is athlete wellbeing is seen as almost on an island, uh, away from all of the core performance functions within a, a strong sporting model. Uh, and that's changing and, and there's an evidence base evolving. And I think there's plenty of really strong anecdotal case studies of teams that have been successful through doing more of that kind of work. Um, But it it still is uh, not as common as it should be, I suppose. Um, So I think that that first point is is having that determination to push through and and not fall at the first hurdle and just see it as one of those um, journeys whereby when you actually get there, where you get the buy-in, when you get to that point, when you get the buy-in from the key stakeholders of the organisation, Uh, it's so incredibly fulfilling to get to that point. Um, And I think that that is almost the, the obstacle becomes the, the way, Uh, you know, the, 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 the phrase by Ryan Holiday title of his book, the obstacle is the way it's very much the true of of the athlete wellbeing space is that you have to make it a whole of organization thing. 
And I think sometimes rather than seeing it just as something that's going to impact and benefit the athletes, is trying to make it a whole organisation conversation around how it can benefit different different levels of the organisation in different ways. Um, so involving the key stakeholders from the top to the bottom and the bottom to the top in having a conversation around what do we actually mean when we talk about athlete wellbeing <laughs> or wellbeing generally. Now, that's always the first starting point because everyone will have a different experience of it. And I think some coaches and administrators are... They push back because they never had it themselves, and so it's it's almost like this. Well, I never had it, so and I, I was able to perform at a high level. So why do you need it to perform at a high level? As distinct from stepping back and saying, "Well, no, the world's changed a bit," and I think younger coaches are helping with that. But I don't want to make it an age thing because I've seen some older coaches who are probably the biggest proponents of it, um, the biggest promoters of it, and I've given you two there, Tommy Hafey and David Parkin, who guys that, um, well, Tommy, Tommy's passed away now. He, he would be well into his 70s and David's well into his 70s. Um, they, they were able to promote it within their programs at a time when it just wasn't focused on. So I think making it a whole organisation conversation and starting at that point around, well, what's your experience of wellbeing? What do we mean by it? You know, what does athlete wellbeing mean to you? Um, how do we define it? Uh, and let's not make it too much of a, a technical conversation that only needs to be with the team psychologist because everyone gets to touch it in some shape or form. Everyone has the ability to impact and influence it. So getting all of those key people around the table to talk about it, I think is a really important starting point. Um, and, and then the other one is is just being able to, to tell that story about what you're seeing around the world that provide those case studies for where it's worked. So we live in a world now where we've got so much fantastic, there's great social media content, there's little video snippets that come out all the time. We've got articles, social media gives us that platform where we can, we get a window through into other sports and industries around the world and other teams and the way that they're doing things. And if you're an athlete wellbeing professional, you're gonna be tuned into the people who are experts in their field in this area. So the stuff that they post on LinkedIn or on their websites or in their newsletters, you know, like picking those case studies where it has worked and just sharing that around for key people within your organisation so that you're just planting that seed. You're not ramming it down their throat. You're just putting it on the table, the stories around where it has worked, where it's been successful um, so that a coach or an administrator or a physical performance manager, wherever you're getting the blockages, they can start to think about, well, yeah, maybe this stuff is not as foreign as what I thought it was, or maybe it can benefit it, benefit us more than I thought it could. Um, you, you're creating that space for them to share openly and, and safely in that environment. There's a great little activity I do with organisations when we do build a, a, a organisational wellbeing strategy, and I just get people to bring along a photo to the conversation that represents what does athlete wellbeing mean to them or what does wellbeing mean to them? And think about it more broadly. And the very start of the workshop, you just go around the table and you get people to share their images and the reason why they've chosen that image. And, and the conversations off the back of that are always enormous because people get to see that what I thought athlete wellbeing was or wellbeing was is very different to what they think, is very different to what they think, is very different to what they think based on their own experience. Some people will go to the career part of it. Some people will go to the study part of it. Some people will go to the, the gratitude part of it. Some people will go to the identity part of it. Some people go to the mental health or mental illness part of it. Like there's all those different dimensions that you, you start to see unfold when you have that conversation. So I think that that's a really simple, practical way for people who are feeling stuck at that first hurdle to be able to just get to the next stage. And thank you for sharing some of those kind of tips and techniques and and different um, ways for individuals in in this space who are facing obstacles or adversity to to try to overcome that and and meet the resistance head on and, and hopefully overcome it. I think one of the, you know, you've touched on a range of different things there, which are really quite cool. I mean, I think the the terminology that, you know, typically player welfare, athlete development specialists are kind of seen as an island and they're kind of left to their own devices. And, you know, you only go over there when 
there's something, you know, quote unquote wrong or whatever the case may be. And then the other thing that you just said is that you need to tell stories of success. And I think this may be a perfect inflection point to talk about how, first off, you've been extraordinarily successful in integrating player welfare and athlete development across your entire club within the Richmond Tigers environment, all the way from the very top of the organization, all the way to the very bottom. But more critically, what's happened is you guys have performed unbelievably well over an extended period of time, winning league championship after league championship. And I think in order to kind of put this conversation with you into context for some of our listeners is it may be good to kind of have you walk through what you're doing right now within the Tigers as an example and and to kind of understand how successful that has been with this approach of, of integrating the 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 entire sort of player welfare approach across the organization top to bottom yeah, yeah well the first thing i'd say with that duncan is we're very lucky every organization i work with and there's multiple sports you know, men's sports women's sports um a number of corporate organizations as well too i'm very very lucky to work with with very special people um incredibly gifted people um, people who are passionate about what they do and people who have a real attitude and mindset around um, collaboration and teamwork. So I think the reason for the success at some of the organisations that I've worked with um, is about that team-based approach. And, and I think that that is a big shift in itself, is away from athlete wellbeing needing to sit with one person, whether it's the psychologist or the doctor or the athlete wellbeing staff, um, so on and so forth, it's, it's actually having more of that wellbeing team um, where you, you actually identify who are the key stakeholders that need to be involved in and around that space, who has some value and expertise to add, and then how do you ensure that you put a, a model in place whereby you're uh, regularly getting around the table together and talking about what you're seeing, um, what some of the issues might be and what some of the opportunities might be. So I think that that team-based approach is really, really important. Um, I see the role that I play is more of a facilitator, if you like, um, in some of those environments because you're identifying the right people, you're bringing them together, and then you're ensuring that they're talking about the right the right things. Um, so, so that's um, probably the the first piece there, and then then the second one is around the power of the little things done well over and over again. Um, so establishing some really strong rituals and rhythms around what you do in that area. So once you've defined what you think wellbeing is um, and how you can improve in that space, it's then identifying some really simple touch points where you can integrate it into your existing program. Because time's always the issue, isn't it? You know, every every organization's time poor, but particularly sporting programs are time poor. Yeah, there's, so, there's a ton of time pressure. So out of curiosity, are there some examples you're willing to share about some of the little things that you've done in order to help integrate it into the organization you're... And again, for everybody that's listening, Shane's worked... I've, I've been privy to Shane's background and, and I've known Shane now for a while and he works across a range of different organizations. But a lot of your... Um, you become particularly well-known for the work you're doing with the Tigers. What are some of the things you've been able to integrate there that have allowed you to be success, successful at this top flight professional sport league of the AFL? Yeah, I think the uh, the simple things are look, yeah, looking at using others as the vehicle for that conversation. So it might be as simple as the coach, for example, or the assistant coaches uh, allowing two to three minutes at the start of a team meeting or at the end of a team meeting to introduce some form of wellbeing-based conversation. It could be a check-in. You know, it could be as simple as, uh, shoulder buddies, you know, turn to the the player next to you in your theaterette and just share with that person one thing you're grateful for right now. Uh, or turn to the person on the other side and talk about something you're struggling with at the moment. Um, so bringing that awareness to how important that broader topic can be uh, is the simplest form of it, I suppose. And that's something that every coach, every team has the ability to do is trying to cr- cr- look at that existing framework and your existing team meetings that you do have and integrate things that just create a point of difference. Um, Storytelling is a big part of it. You know, it's been well publicised, the work that we've done um, at, at Richmond in and around the storytelling space. And it started way back 2017 where 
um, Damian Hardwick, the coach, was was looking for a way to give the players a chance to connect with one another on a deeper level. Um, and the players were saying that they wanted to do the same. So they were a very driven group of driven playing group, um, very driven group of senior leaders, uh, and they were feeling like they wanted to go to another level with the strength of their relationships with their teammates. So, you know, we looked at a few different models and I'd come across one that was originally coined by Mike Smith, former coach of the Atlanta Falcons, I believe, called Triple H, which was Hero Hardship Highlight. Um, and, and we suggested that one, and, and that was the one that, that ended up, uh, we, we used as, as part of... Um, uh, that season and, and and over the course of that year, every single player, coach and staff member got up in front of the group and shared um, who was their hero and why, uh, what was a hardship that they'd had to endure and how did they they get through that and out the other side and then what was a highlight from their life. Um, and, and that became a, a ritual, team ritual of sorts. And the guys, you know, the, when they look back now, they say that that was one of the most incredible um, cultural or, or leadership kind of well-being type experiences that they've ever had because it gave them a chance to reflect on their own story, share their story with their teammates, and then also hear the stories of of their teammates um, and the the staff and coaches who are responsible for looking after them. Um, I think that the, the thing with any of those activities is you should never force it. So if there's a willingness there, that's great. Build up to it. So look for, for ways to introduce things that will give you some progression. So you might not you might not have the psychological safety in the environment to go straight there to talking about hardships um, right away, um, nor would you ever want to force someone to talk about something they didn't want to talk about. But it's looking for really simple tools and frameworks that you can use to introduce more of that sharing and awareness into the environment um, and then look to build momentum with that over time. So... Presumably, if you're doing it the right way, then you might start at a small level and then you might build it up to being something um, bigger over a period of time. But, but looking for ways to integrate it into your, your existing team structure is a, a great place to, um, to start. And, and the storytelling stuff, you know, I do a lot of coach development work here as well too. And the, the AFL has a, a high-performance coaches course and they bring together a group of coaches every year and, and, and we do a module around storytelling for coaches. And what you see is that a lot of coaches are actually, they lack a bit of confidence at telling stories themselves, is that they're used to being caught up in the X's and O's and the actual tactical side of the sport. The actual storytelling side of it probably isn't one that they've ever had a chance to really refine and practice too much. So I've seen sort of a lack of confidence, but also a big opportunity in and around that is that if the coaches embrace it more, then um, theoretically the players will as well too. So, you know, the players seeing the coaches incorporate more storytelling into the way that they coach, I think is a really good positive step. I was going to ask you, Um, sorry, Steph, I wasn't sure what we'd lost here. Go ahead, Steph. No. Um, Shane, you, you talked a lot about storytelling and activities that can truly help bring together a team. It, it allows for an opportunity for connectivity, for um, a sense of team chemistry, but also, and I know it's something that you talk about, is vulnerability. And so if you can shed some, uh, you know, a little bit more um, light on, on vulnerability, because I know it, it's something that you infuse in the work, uh, because you said, you know, right from the beginning, you're not necessarily going to share your woes or, or something that's tragic, but how do you get to that point where individuals feel comfortable to be vulnerable to then have that sense of chemistry, culture, connectivity? Yeah, and another great question, Stephanie. I think sometimes with vulnerability, we go to the uh, like the hardship-oriented stuff straight away. Is it we, when we think about vulnerability, we think about opening up about things we wouldn't normally open up about. I think for me in a team sports setting, vulnerability is about much, much more than that. And sometimes it can just be getting out of your comfort zone and doing something you wouldn't normally do um, with the support of your teammates. Um, It can be a coach taking a risk with the way that he coaches with the group. So maybe he starts a team meeting with some charades or maybe he plays a little bit of music as the team wanders into the team meeting room. You know, that might feel 
like he's make he or she's making himself vulnerable in that situation, you know, just from trying something that's different. But that's that's what vulnerability can mean as well too. Um, so it's not just in the context of the story side of things. It's also in the context of the way you approach your craft as a coach or, or an athlete, um, being willing to get outside of your comfort zone. Uh, a captain at Richmond is, is a guy called Trent Cotchen, um, who's an amazing person, um, a great uh, family man, uh, a terrific player, uh, and has been a brilliant captain for, for Richmond Footy Club over a number of years. And he has a quote that he uses very often, which is that if, if you're not growing, you're dying. Uh, and he uses it in the context of a really healthy approach to taking risks, taking yourself out of your comfort zone and making sure that you're constantly doing things that challenge you in a way that you haven't been challenged before. And therein lies the growth. So I think looking for opportunities to do that because in sport, more so than any other environment, we can be creatures of habit and we get stuck in like a pattern and a routine and the same way of doing things. And and discipline and routine and structure is important in sport, absolutely, don't get me wrong. Um, a big part of what I do is trying to help establish that stuff as well. But I think every now and then challenging the status quo is incredibly powerful and beneficial in the context of, of, of uh, step changes in and around performance, in and around well-being, in and around culture and leadership and um, being willing to do things that are, are slightly uh, different that, cha- that, that go against the grain um, because we sport prides itself on looking for ways to get the edge but when you look at what we actually do behind the scenes, most teams are very similar in most competitions around the world. Like the, the differences are often very minute. Um, there's not often the courage that there can be to actually create a market shift in the way that you approach trying to generate better outcomes, either on field or, or off field um, in the area that you're working. So I think that that, that part of vulnerability is, is, is really important. But the other thing as well is that particularly and a lot of the sports that I work in are male dominated um, they're not all but some are and so that that power of vulnerability just bring it takes on a whole new life in a male dominated environment because opening up to one another is not something that we do very well as blokes <laughs> if I coin that <clears throat> excuse me the Aussie phrase as an Aussie bloke like the the Aussie male um, but men in general don't do that very well um, in terms of being in touch with our emotions and our feelings and our ability to share a bit more of ourselves with the people around us. Um, so w- when we think about it, <coughs> frog in the throat, I'll start again there. It's definitely, it's definitely not COVID, right? <laughs> no, it's definitely not COVID. No COVID <laughs> in Melbourne, folks, only in Sydney. We're all good here. Uh, I think... Um, the it's hard for it's hard for blokes sometimes to open up to one another but it's so incredibly powerful to do that to remind yourself of the importance of uh talking to the people around you about what you find hard day to day um what what you want the type of person you want to be uh, what your values are um what lights you up and inspires you you know what's your purpose as an individual like some of these topics are very uh you know big picture and potentially out of reach if it's not something that you talk about day to day. But I, I feel like we have an obligation, in, in particularly in team sports, but in any sport environment, to create an opportunity for all of the people that are involved to realise the very best version of themselves. Um, and if we think about you know, one of the models that I often talk about with clients in one of the early conversations is Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, one of the very first motivational theories we get presented in almost year seven or eight science when we first start high school and and many of you will remember that that hierarchy of needs but that notion that we are all hardwired to self-actualize as human beings so we all want to try and be at our very best innately that's part of the human experience in order to get to that state of being at our very best we have to feel like we we belong we have to feel that we're we're cared for we have to feel like we've got some kind of connection with the people in the environment that we're a part of day to day. Uh, and, and in our most sports, we'll tick the, the bottom layer of that pyramid straight away because they'll give people their paycheck. So there's a roof over their head and 
they've got food and water and, and those basic human physiological needs are met. But then in order to strive for that top layer of the pyramid, the self-actualization, we have to have all of those things that we spoke about, the belonging, the care, the trust, the intimacy. And when you ask coaches and administrators sometimes to self-reflect on their overall sport program and the amount of time they spend on those middle three layers of the pyramid, it's amazing how they reflect on it and they say, well, yeah, we really don't spend a lot of time on that because we're either in the gym or we're on the training track or we're in um, video review. Um, where do we fit that stuff in? Well, find a way, you know, and start with those small little bite-sized chunks. I think that that's, um, that's really key. I think they added a, another layer to, to Maslow's hierarchy of needs in more recent years, um, a, a layer that sits above self-actualization or self-optimization. And, and it's that notion of giving back. And the power is once you've unlocked your, your capability as a, as a performer or as a person, that, that ability to then move to a point of giving to others and contributing to others and contributing to the environment and community that you're a part of is is another layer that sits above that and so i've seen enormous power in team environments where people where people are willing to actually celebrate what they're doing to make each other better as well too so celebrating the little things that players or coaches or staff are doing away from the club to make the life of other people better um and and there's real power in that too servant leadership Servant leadership, that's exactly what it is. It's, it's not so much what I do. <laughs> it's what I can contribute in order to serve the people in the mm-hmm. environment that I'm a part of, to make it a better place to be. You know, and, and you know, it's, you talk about the Richmond case study and, and Richmond has had a lot of success in recent years. This year hasn't been as successful in terms of ladder position. They've been challenged on field. Every team goes through that phase of their journey where they have some challenges that they come up against. And, and that's the true test of a team and a culture is the ability to get through that now at the other side. But one thing that the club and the coaches have been very firm and resolute around is our approach doesn't change, win, lose or draw in the context of what we're trying to achieve through the program. The main aim every single day that the players come into the environment is did they do something today to make themselves or someone else better? than they were the day before? And did we enable them through what we covered over the course of that training day, did we enable them to walk away with a smile on their face? Because that's how we want them to feel, is if we've won, we want them to feel like they know what they need to do to continue to win. Or if they've lost, we want them to feel like they've got the answers that they needed in order to start to win again. And then the piece that sits over the top of all of that is what did we do in order to give them a chance to be a better person today? And that's why we want them walking away with that smile on their face. And I think that having that kind of overarching philosophy, if you've got that and there's a good understanding of that at each of those different levels of the organisation, as we spoke about at the very start of the conversation, if you've got that collective understanding around what's the philosophy of your program, what are you trying to achieve, then it makes it so, so much easier in order to, to do the mechanics stuff day after day. So out of curiosity, Shane, what have you learned? Like, how is your how is your views changed on like when you first started? You know, several you know, however many years ago, and you're now looking back over your experiences across a range of different clientele. You've had some success. I know that multiple teams that you've worked with have won have won titles. How has your perception of the space changed, and how how have your your just your general approach? How has it evolved over the last few years? I think that a lot of the philosophies that we have um, have as part of the work that we do have started to become more accepted as being beneficial um, and, and also that the evidence base is much stronger now around the importance of caring for the individual. So, And it's not just a sporting trend. I mean, you see it happen in you know, a lot of corporate organisations that you work in too and that whole notion of staff wellbeing and even flexible working, you know, over the last 18, 18 months to two years and COVID's impacted the world and at different stages in different countries, we've been forced into lockdown and we've had to shift to a, 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 a different form of work, a flexible form of work. 
And and that has also progressed the conversation about wellbeing too, because organisations for the very first time have had to force themselves to have conversations about, well, if our people are working from home, how can we actually support them to ensure that A, they can do their job, but B, they've got everything that they need to be happy and healthy and, and high functioning. Uh, and, and so that, that notion of wellbeing gets kind of put really firmly at the top of the agenda. Um, and, and I think a lot of the organisations who have been doing that work for a long period of time have built a competitive advantage because you've got all these teams and organisations who are scrambling to catch up, whereas they've been doing it for years. Uh, a colleague of mine, Dominic Price at Atlassian up in Sydney, are, are an incredibly exciting uh, tech company um, that were, were based out of Sydney or, or started in Sydney and, and they've now spread all around the world. And they do culture in a really cool way. If, if you have an opportunity, the listeners, to jump on their website and have a look at what they call the Atlassian Team Playbook. They really love their sport there and they've built a collection of what they call plays, team plays. And it's all based around that notion that in order to improve your team environment or, or the quality of life for your people, you have to, to do... Uh, certain things day to day that that give you an improvement. So they've got a whole collection of kind of step by step uh, activities on their website that you can access. But you know they're a, they're a tech company, they're a technology based organisation, but they do culture and leadership in such a cool way, and they've had such great results because of the focus that they've put on it. But that whole notion of flexible working, they've been doing that for eight to ten years, <laughs> so it's, it hasn't really been an adjustment for them at all. And Dom. Dom talks about that is is that um, they've already been doing it that way, so it's it's not a big shift for them. Um, so I think that it is much more common to be focused on it now in this post COVID world, if if we call it that, um, because I think the pennies finally dropped that that this stuff is important. Um, I think that the the league bodies and the players associations in different sports around the world are also. Uh, better resourced perhaps than what they have been in the past. And so the programs are stronger in and around that. And because of the way that social media and the internet works is that the storytelling is better about what's required to succeed. Naomi Osaka and the whole kind of um, controversy around some of her um, you know, recent participation in, in tennis events around the world, like that, that actually forces a really positive conversation for not just sporting organisations, but for any industry around the importance of athlete wellbeing and, and looking after your people. So I think that we are seeing many more of those stories that force better conversations in and around that too. And, and the other thing, you know, is just the difference country to country is Australia is very different to the US perhaps. Um, Australia and New Zealand have probably put them in similar um, boats in that regard in that they're small countries that probably punch above their weight on the global stage. And they do that because there's a greater pressure because of the small population size to get the absolute best out of the athletes and the people that they've got. So it's it's not a, a great um, analogy, but you know, squeezing every last drop of juice out of the lemon um, and I, I use that metaphor in a really positive way in the context of enabling someone to get the very best out of themselves and, and supporting them to do that. Now, in other countries around the world where you've got a bigger population size, and the US is an example of that, is that it probably can be a bit more churn and burn sometimes because if one person's not performing or they're injured uh, or they're not at the level, you just move them on and you bring someone else in. And it's a bit more like an assembly line, which is which is another really graphic um, extreme metaphor. But I think it depends on what your philosophy is. Like, do you, if you are even in a country whereby you do have access to a high amount of talent, and you can just move someone on and bring someone else in, uh, is that the best thing for sustainable performance, or would you be better? trying to orient your, your program towards getting the very best out of every single person that you've got. And sometimes that means failing and falling short and um, having to go back again and again and again. But I, I think that you know a lot of athletes, because they come into the system so early, they need second chances and third chances and fourth chances. And sometimes if you're willing to give them that, they'll reward you tenfold. 
Uh, and we've seen plenty of examples of that around the world as well too. So um, I think that that, uh, that piece around being willing to challenge the status quo regardless of where, you're, you're, where you are in the world I think is, is quite important too as part of that. The, the importance of challenging the status quo, like you said, I think is critical. And I think one of the things that you, you've talked about is is sort of how in an Australian context, you know, you don't have the population, New Zealand in particular, right? You don't have that huge population. And I think that's why in, in North America, I think you're right. I think there is more of an inclination, not necessarily to have to invest deeply in the athlete. You can always find somebody else that's going to be desperate to be over here to do it. And that may that may be slowing the adoption of what you're seeing happen more frequently in in Australia. And I think it's like mm-hmm. you said, I think it's to the detriment of the sport. It's obviously to the detriment of the athlete. But I think critically is what you're showing is that it's actually in detriment to the organization's performance over the long haul. And I think that to me is the message that we really need to share based on the work that you're doing is that if you really do want to optimize your organization to perform and your athletes to perform at peak is the, you can't view athlete development, player welfare, uh, well-being as, as an Island. It is, it, is it a critical piece of infrastructure to drive success over the long run? Uh, so I think, you know, what you're talking about here is, is unbelievably relevant and salient to, driving performance. And then that's really what we're talking about because if what you were doing in the context of the Tigers wasn't working, we wouldn't be talking to you right now. Right. I mean, at the, at the end of the day, that's the, the, the net net in professional sports, it's all about the W's. And if they aren't there, then what we're talking about isn't going to hold up. But in fact, in your case, we've seen huge gains. So I think, um, from my perspective, I'm just curious is, is as you see this sort of grow and expand across Australia or, or maybe ask that the other way, is it growing and expanding across Australia? I think we know the answer is probably most yes, but I, I still think it's early days, even in Australia, would you not say? Yeah, definitely early days. There's a lot more work to, to be done and, and that's the, the great opportunity. And, and what you say is right, Duncan, is that it does need to be embedded. And I think that that's, often one of the principles that you, you have to talk about early is you can't experiment with this stuff. Um, I'm a big believer in piloting programs. I think that that is important. But uh, in the context of the functions that you need to exist within your organisation to drive performance, you've got to embed that stuff. So it doesn't have to take a lot of time, as we've spoken about, but you do have to have that desire to embed it. Um, it can't just be a, a nice to have or something that you just dabble in. You've got to go. You've got to embed it as part of kind of what's important to you. And and I've seen you know worked in teams whereby you talk about something like uh, mental skills or leadership development or and wellbeing is the same. My um, sports science is another area. Like some organisations just dabble with that stuff, or they make it optional for the players and athletes, um, as distinct from actually saying, well, we believe that this stuff's important. We've done our homework. Uh, this is the difference between us being good or us being great. And so we're actually going to take the steps to embed it as part of what we do day to day. Now, that doesn't mean it has to take a lot of time, but it will be embedded somewhere in the program so that we've got a dedicated time slot once a week or we might have a couple of time slots twice a week or we might have um, just more of a philosophy from the people who operate in that environment, from the coaches, for example, to bring it more into their existing uh, line meetings or team meetings uh, or coaching meetings. Um, I think that that part of it's quite important um, uh, in, in the context of, you know, where you can go to with it. And, and, and then searching for examples. I mean, I mentioned before, you know, we talk about sport a lot and the sport case studies are powerful, but there are also uh, lessons to be learned from other industries and organisations. I've done a little bit of work in special forces and, and, uh, and you see it in, in defence as well too, where it's starting to be seen as something that is critically important for the ability to perform in some of those environments. Um, it's a guy uh, who I believe you, you might know, Duncan, um, over there in the, in the US who does a lot of work in and around that space. Um, and they, they talk about that notion of, of having a third thing uh, in your life. And 
the, all of the research that they've done in the army is that having that third thing accelerates uh, the training, it accelerates their performance and accelerates their transition um, during their time in, in the special forces. So I think that, you know, looking to other industries as well too that are also about high performance is a great way to to bring kind of relevant stories back to back to your team environment that might help. Shane, I really appreciate you sharing this perspective that I had never even realized in terms of the, you know, the population, therefore the amount of athletes is much smaller than the United States. And a common feeling that I think a lot of individuals in the sports industry in the United States feel is that um, they can be disposed of at any time. So how do you build a sense of, of team and culture and chemistry if your job is at stake, whether you are a coach or an athlete? And if, if teams care about the wins and the success and, and the culture, there has to be some type of consistency and continuity and giving people that opportunity. Um, so it's just a very interesting perspective. And I think about those individuals that work in the athlete development space who often have to have that conversation with these young men or women saying, sorry, your time is up on to the next. Um, so again, just, you know, appreciate that perspective. And I, I found a quote um, that you said, and I just was wondering if you could share a little bit about um, what this means to you, um, kind of frame it. That would be great. You control the narrative that you or your team find yourselves in at any given time. And I know, again, you talk a lot about storytelling, but what specifically were you saying with this quote? Well, I, th I think that the great thing about team sporting environment, Stephanie, is that you, you you learn more about yourself sometimes when you're losing than when you're winning. Uh, and, and that's because it often creates this incredible shared collective experience of a situation that you would ideally not be in, but you're in because that's the nature of sport. I haven't known too many teams over the journey that have gone through seasons undefeated. It just very rarely happens. Like winning is part of sport and losing is part of sport. And I reckon the teams that stay stuck in that losing mode for too long uh, without kind of finding ways to get out of it um, do a disservice to themselves. You know, like if you... If you lose a game of sport and you lock yourself in a cold, dark room on your own for the next three days because you're so disappointed in your performance, is that really going to help you get to where you want to get to? Or are you better to still do what you would have done if you had a win? And that is have a share a beer with your teammates and uh, get around each other and talk about what went well and talk about what didn't go well and start to put the wheels in motion for what the next week and month and um, phase of the year could look like. And I think that that's the, the benefit of, of being involved in great team environments is that you do control that narrative, is you can add whatever meaning you want to the situation that you find yourself in at any point in time. And, you know, if, if we want to talk about extreme examples, you know, drawing on people who have um, been prisoners of war uh, is, is the most pointed um, case study we can draw on there and people like Viktor Frankl and Man's Search for Meaning, one of my favourite books of all time. And I still remember I, I first read it, I was in a hospital in, in the middle of Colombia um, with dengue fever from a mosquito bite and I felt as sick as I've ever been and I just happened to have this book in my bag that I pulled out at the time to read and gee, what a choice you know, in terms of me thinking that I was in a pretty bad situation and then reading this book about, about Viktor Frankl having been in a concentration camp and him talking about the ways that the, the prisoners were able to find meaning in that suffering that they are encountering day after day after day. Um, there's an incredible conversation. If we want to talk about another example of, of prisoners of war, Edith Eager, another author I'm sure that you, your listeners are familiar with, had a, has, you can find her online every, everywhere. Her book, The Choice, is, is terrific and another one called The Gift. But um, she did a conversation with Brené Brown recently. It was her and Brené in conversation. And just that power of perspective, like no matter how bad your situation might feel, there's always a way to get through it and out the other side. Um, and particularly relevant for us in this COVID world as well too and many people suffering um, mm -hmm. either from a physical perspective or from a, an economic perspective. But being able to, to assign some meaning 
to the suffering and the experience that you're going through at any point in time. I think that that is a big part of what that quote's all about, Stephanie, and um, what I think is the opportunity of sport, not just to give us something that adds meaning to our lives, but also as a vehicle for, for social change and changing what we're capable of as a community of people that comes together. Um, that, that's the real, um, um, the real benefit of being able to play sport, whether it's at the elite level, uh, whether it's at the sub-elite level, or even whether it's at the community level. You know, everyone's involved with it, has a chance for it to add meaning and value to their life through the ups and particularly through the downs. It's all about perspective. Out of curiosity, Shane, so we've kind of covered a lot here and, and it's all it's super fascinating, but when you kind of look at where you are now, where you've been, where do you think things are going now? Where, what's the future sort of of the, the player welfare space look like to you over the coming three to five years in Australia and beyond? Yeah, I think um, mental health is a big part of it. So we, and probably with the, the, the COVID impacts, you know, we're not just having a pandemic, global pandemic. We're also having a, a real mental health crisis whereby there's, there's more people, there's a better conversation taking place around the stigma around mental illness. So if people are struggling, the help seeking is better than ever before, but the system isn't equipped to deal with the demand that's there. So it's great on the one hand that we've got people wanting to seek help, but on the other hand, we haven't kept up in the context of the professional support that's available. So I think there's work to be done in making sure that the leagues and the players associations and the teams are equipped to be able to look after their people in that regard. Um, and that's not just the athletes, it's the, the athletes, the coaches and the staff. Um, so I'm seeing a real shift happening in and around that space around how do you identify good qualified people to be able to help in and around that mental health space. So that's a big one. Um, more of that shift towards a, like a collective approach to wellbeing. So it's not just the psychologist that's responsible for wellbeing. Wellbeing is much, much bigger than just mental health. So um, having that collective team approach where you've got the physical performance staff involved, you've got your administration involved, you've got your coaching staff involved. Um, everyone that has a role to play uh, is represented in and around that conversation. Um, so I think that that's a, another big part of it. I think that we're seeing, uh, you know, players... Um, driving their their destiny more as well too. So athletes are, are wanting to lead their organisations around what resources they have in place. So previously it might have been that the, the clubs would be responsible for deciding what they provide for their players. But I think given the, the rise in the voice of players in different sports around the world, it's one of the real positives of that is that, that athletes are identifying what they need to be successful. So that, that will actually help facilitate a greater emphasis on on what we do in the wellbeing space, uh, and I think the role of past players in athlete wellbeing is also a really important shift. So it's making sure that you've got qualified personnel to support from the mental health viewpoint, but then making sure you've got good former players or, or coaches perhaps um, who have been athletes, they've been there, they've done that, and they've got that experience of what the struggles are of of a professional athlete that are there to help other athletes in that environment. So um, the teams that I work with where they have a blend of people from outside of the sport and then people who have been involved in the sport are the ones that tend to have the greatest success. Um, and, and that mix um, of experience there is a, a big, big part of that. So I think that, you know, that, that, that is another um, component of, um, of what the, the future and the, the evolution of, the, of that space perhaps looks like. That's probably a great place to, to wrap it up. We've been going here for almost an hour. Uh, I think um, there's a lot to learn from your experiences. And I think there's a lot to, to really kind of wrap our minds around in terms of the success you've had of integrating player welfare across the board. And I think that's really what we wanted to get, get out today. And I think we were able to do that. So Steph, to you, I want to say thanks for jumping on the call today. And then, of course, many thanks to Shane for, for making the time to hop on the line with us today. So thanks a ton for making the time, man. Thanks, Duncan and Stephanie. I really appreciate the opportunity. And um, we might, uh, if anyone's got any questions, feel free to 
to uh, to let us know, and we might send through, send around a few of the resources that we've referenced over the course of today, just for those who do want to do a bit more reading or or watching or listening in and around what's a such an important space um, that we're all very passionate about. And I think that just as a, a final word, perhaps just to to sort of say thanks to everyone that is listening who work in this area because the work that you're doing is creating a legacy that will last for many, many gener- generations to come. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that that's overly dramatic to say that is because the work you're doing in that athlete wellbeing space is impacting the athletes in a positive way such that they go on to be better people, um, better contributors in the community, um, better better family members, um, and, and you get better outcomes for a very, very long period of time. So I think um, just to sort of say thanks to all of those people for the fantastic hard work that you do day in and day out in order to to help the athletes and coaches and staff be better people because it's such important work. It's real legacy work uh, and it makes it'll make the world a better place to be. And if I say anything after that, I'm going to ruin it. Well, let's end on that. Thanks again, Shane McCurry. Appreciate your time, man. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. We really hope you enjoyed it. And more importantly, we greatly appreciate your support of PADS. We'd also like to acknowledge the support of our global partners for their ongoing support of all of our initiatives, including the Athlete Development Podcast Series. Again, be sure to be on the lookout for information regarding live Q&A sessions. And we urge you to continue to dive deep into all of the different podcasts that we're bringing to you over the coming weeks. Again, thanks for your interest and for your support of PADS.